and gentlemen uh timothy chalamet stands of all ages welcome to clappercast episode 79 a big episode uh not with a lot of guests but with a lot of very big movies i'm very excited to chat about i am joined today though by alina falds paul price feels like it's been forever since on one of these normal episodes it's just been us the main group no guests no guests with bad audio no guests arriving late just us hanging out chilling uh how are you guys doing this fine day we're back to our roots i'm so happy to like talk about how i've been because we've just been skipping that over over the past month and i'm like carson i used the how are you to trauma dump on people what do you mean just skipped over us every week i'm fine <laughs> don't want to scare david day. i'm sorry <laughs> um i made a puzzle of michelangelo's creation of adam this week because i have been super depressed by the fall gloom in rural ontario but other than that it's fine i'm kicking um i really got to get some work done instead of like sitting in the bathtub like margot tenenbaum every single night but you know shit happens <laughs> <laughs> wow, I can't believe we've been skipping that after four weeks. That was such a great doing. <laughs> um, I actually, I'm good. Well, um, I actually do have a story. So my dog, um, groomer, I used to take him to Vanderpump Dogs Grooming. Um, so he was like a bougie <laughs> oh, little <God>. dog. <laughs> um, and the groomer I used to use like up and quit. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay. And it took me a little while to find the groomer. And then I found him. And then um, I tried to sign up and then all of a sudden dog flu happened. So um, what is dog flu? So dog flu is basically like, it was basically the COVID pandemic of dogs. Um, It's a thing that comes around occasionally, but it was like really bad. And all these dogs were dying of it. They were like, you have to get your, yeah. They were like, you have to get your dog vaccinated. So um, (laughs) I got, yeah, so I had to get uh, arrow vaccinated. Is there like, is there like a Dr. Fauci of dogs that's like a pit, like a pit bull? Oh, yeah. That's like, get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah, because the Fauci of dogs would be a pit bull. Hey, <laughs> be Fauci, like a Bichon Frigé. I haven't seen the documentary yet, but he seems like a fierce man. Um, so anyway, um, after that, it took like a month and a half to get all the vaccinations. And then... In that time, the groomer moved to a different place and I couldn't even use him anymore because um, he's in a mobile place and he can't do my area. It doesn't matter. Anyway, so I was like, I'll go to a new place. That'll be fine. Well, okay, so with schnauzers, you have to get them cut regularly or they get really matted no matter how much you brush them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Arrow was a little matted, like not too, too bad, but like bad enough. And she was like, oh, we may charge you extra to um, demat him. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, So I go to pick him up and he's now bald. They fully shaved him. And they were like, we're also charging you for the dematting. And I was like, you didn't demat him. You made him naked. Um, 
which was like he looks a like new... a little goblin it's so amazing <laughs> we have to get a pic um, and post on the twitter yeah. so that you understand so, audience members it is it was shocking the well, day you guys do, you guys don't even know this part so also i'm not saying that the groomer punched him but i am saying that he now has a burst blood vessel in his eye and so i took this dog in very cute i got him back a goblin with a bloody eye and it's like I looked it up. It's going to take three weeks to heal. So for the next like three weeks, I have this like very expensive dog that looks horrifying. <laughs> um, so, That's yeah, fucked I, up, dude. You should sue them. I, I don't take, take my a- dog to my gr- a groomer. So like he's just like a farm dog and I brush him once a year and he's fine. Yeah. Well, Schnauzer <laughs> specifically, like um, there's a difference between dogs. Um Yeah where uh, side dogs, I don't think Alina knew that well, there was a difference between dogs. No, 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 no. I was gonna say, <laughs> some dogs have fur, some dogs have hair. I, most people don't know that. Um, it's why schnauzers are hypoallergenic because they have hair, not fur. But like you having hair, not fur, you have to get it cut. Um, I don't actually understand the specifics of why that is. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's why like um, dogs, I actually I do. Hair doesn't shed. So fur sheds, so you never have to like have it groomed. Mm-hmm. But anyway, hair just keeps growing, so it would just he would be like you know super long. But anyway, yeah. So he's like he's doing fine. His eye doesn't hurt or anything, but it is very funny. We're taking him to the vet tomorrow just to make sure because the other option is that it could be an infection. And I was like maybe he had like dirty dog water or something splashed in his eye. But if it is like trauma, I'm gonna like call them up and be like hi. Did you punch my dog? <laughs> so but next week should. we'll have an, yeah next week we'll have an update on that. So I can't wait for our five month legal case series. <laughs> oh yeah, I see you in court, dog groomers. <laughs> this is I'm gonna call on as evidence. <laughs> I'm gonna call my old uh, lawyer that I uh, served jury duty on and be like, "Hi, remember when I got you some money? Let's." Uh... <laughs> <laughs> First, we found the Zodiac Killer. Now we're going to sue your dog. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's the next step in the legal proceedings of the world. So good. Well, why don't we get into some of our films? Because we do have quite a few films. And some are very long, including the one we're going to start out with. We've been waiting a very, very, very long time for Dune. And finally, it is out. Alina, you saw this at TIFF. You saw it before any of us. What were your thoughts on Dune? So... I have never read Dune. I've never watched the David Lynch version. I've never watched whatever the other one is. Like I was going into Dune knowing nothing because I, I prefer it that way. Like I was I'm not, my ass is not reading in a thousand page book of something I didn't give a fuck about. But you know, I liked Denny Villeneuve, but I was still like iffy on it. And I think it's because I don't really like Timothy Chalamet. I think he's overrated. I'm so sorry to the Timothy Chalamet stands, whatever y'all are called, but like he is simply not for me. He's not my type. Um so like I did wasn't even like planning on seeing this at TIFF, but it just fit into my press schedule and I was like, okay. And I went and I sat my little butt down in the IMAX theater and I was like blown the fuck away, which I think I don't know if that was just like the low expectations or just like how much I loved Denny Villeneuve, but I had such a good time with Dune. Um, I feel like, I don't know how much of it is Frank Herbert. Cause like I do have the box set now, but I haven't started reading Dune yet. I will probably tomorrow. Um, but like, 
it's so like sci-fi and futuristic but then it has um so much like historical references and like references to islamic theology and basically like a whole bunch of like humanities shit that i really like and i'm really into so as i was watching the film i was picking up so much just stuff of things i'm interested in and it was like really really fun for me and i think it's a really cool film about like humanity and messianic figures like it's it's so good i think there's like so many like layers and stuff to it and i'm really interested to like finally read the book um and see like the differences between like Frank Herbert's influences on the the series and like what Denny Villeneuve brought to it like it's the only thing I feel like I'm really missing right now but yeah I I really liked it but I understand why some people wouldn't because like it is very much like a part one but to me it feels like this is like the fellowship of the ring and like hopefully we get a confirmation that we're getting a doom part two eventually inshallah i would like it <laughs> okay so i'm gonna play a little game with you guys real quick i just looked it up what do you think timothy chalamet fans are called i just looked on wikipedia Make i hate guess. this because i belong to them but i don't know um <laughs> i hope it's something with like hose or whatever in the name it's not gonna be as like, good as what I call the Benedict Cumberbatch fans, which were the cum shots, but yeah. I like how you're like weird the <clears throat> Okay. Well that was so depressing. Um they are Shalomaniac. Oh, oh. <laughs> Shal <laughs> that's my guess. Yeah. Oh uh... <laughs> I, I thought this it? would be a I thought this would be a fun little game, and instead you guys are like, no. Um, but when you originally looked it's it up- It's a hard name I, to think of, like, I'm yeah. Sorry. yeah, I was like, Timmy something? The funniest part is- Timmy T's? Part is, his rap I name. Do, I do believe that I would have come up with Shallow Maniacs. Uh, like, <laughs> I'm not a very like, creative person. No, me neither. Um, okay, so, but I have to say, um, I just looked up that for you guys, and- um, <laughs> The, if you originally look it up, there's an article and it says Timothy Chalamet's number one fan, Derek. And I have no clue what it's about, <laughs> and I would prefer not to. It's so funny, to Derek. Just, where are you? You should be on the podcast this week. <laughs> it's just like, it's like a, a literal article. It's not like something small. Um, it's through like Vice. <laughs> I and paper mag like apparently this guy is like a big stand so um congratulations to derek for the 40 million dollars that dune got this weekend i'm sure you're thriving um oh yeah derek had a great weekend actually with the other movie um well this really I, is the weekend of uh Chalamania. <laughs> yeah like to the point where like i didn't get to see french dispatch because like the release is there you have for it is so stupid but like after watching dune i was like okay i kind of get it i get where the Chalamania are coming see... from he's not for me but i get it no but did you see the post we post on instagram hyping up the french dispatch specifically no I will it was right a now. great photo we're gonna post that I also on Twitter. We're gonna post when the it was of your just dog like... and Chalamet. <laughs> Dune, Duner. I liked. Dune. Yeah, that one. <laughs> That's gonna be the intro, by the way, for this. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. Um, how? No, this one. Oh. <laughs> great. great. He looks like Bob Dylan there. And he, he does, does actually. Play Bob Dylan, isn't he? 
which so. yes which i am upset about but we can talk about that another time um okay so back to dune um <laughs> did you guys watch did you guys watch game of thrones no <laughs> yeah yeah i did i watched okay. one of episode one i watched so, all of it okay unfortunately. so um sorry i i am a game of thrones <laughs> um apologist i think it's fantastic but um including the ending uh actually you know what's funny i feel like people are gonna have the same reaction to dune knowing the spoilers that um they will for game of thrones it's kind of the same shit where it just goes wait what at the end anyway sorry spoilers for dune um <laughs> not really already though. before we even uh, talk about the movie. <laughs> you can cut that uh no because i just wanted to talk about the game arrow one second like you guys one second arrow stop <laughs> okay uh we just hear a punch <laughs> oh that's how he got no. in our eye <laughs> no he full-on just like bit me and it like really hurt um so i was like he was not a fan hey. of game of thrones the ending <laughs> no he was not a fan of timothy chalamet apparently that's when he started attacking me i mean uh, maybe your dog deserved same. that punch who knows uh no okay i fully believe he deserved the punch but i'm still gonna sue or at least get my hundred it was a hundred dollars for my dog to get turn shaved, him into like a, a goblin <laughs> oh my God. with a bloody eye <laughs> Like an HBO looking at the Game of Thrones final season that they spent like millions of dollars on when they got the final product back. Like, yikes. <laughs> um, Get back okay, to Dune, so, please. Why are we talking about... <laughs> anyway? Okay, so... He's going somewhere with this Game of Thrones yeah, reference. Um, so, I don't know if you like... When you watch Game of Thrones, usually um, it was after the first season. And so you're trying to like... You were doing a binge usually. So you watch episode one. And you're like, yes, I love this. Episode two, yes, this is so great. I'm going to watch one more. Then you got to like episode three and you're like, okay, we're we're really getting into like the politics and like the, the stuff that's not like exciting. It's more like world building. And about through the last third of Dune is exactly how, when I realized that that's how this felt it felt like there were three episodes of a show that I was watching. Like you went to some event and it was like, we're going to show the first three episodes. And you're like, yes, I'm loving this. And then when I got to the third one, I was like, I am fucking bored. And then it ends. And then like you're basically like in three years or maybe never, you're going to get the rest of the season. And <laughs> I think it's a real problem with this. And I think like you go and look at Twitter and if you're not looking at film Twitter, if you look at like, regular twitter uh people are pissed <laughs> like i watched half a movie those are all the like, same bitches who would get mad about watching fellowship of the ring in theaters in like the 2000s but i don't like, know get I, over yourself. See, but i think lord of the rings there's two things that you can't say with lord of the rings that this originally it was one book and actually they fixed some things to make it even more of an ending to book one um there's a couple twists and things that they did uh pulling from book two to make one feel like a complete story um in this one it's halfway through the book i would say it's less like um the lord of the rings and more like either hunger games part one um or the hobbit part one where mm -hmm. it's like you're watching and you're like okay we're getting oh now it's over um, yeah i can totally see the hobbit because like at the very end of the first one, they like just see the misty mountains and then it ends. 
Yeah. Right. Wait, Hunger Games yeah. has a conclusion on number one. Bad example. No, I meant, uh, I meant, uh, I couldn't remember what the movie Mocking was called. Mockingjay. Mockingjay Part One. Got it. Mockingjay yeah. Part One, which literally ends like mid sentence or something. I don't remember what it was, but I was like, Yeah, what the fuck just happened? Um, yeah. So it's the same kind of thing to me, but with all of those, there was a definite. This movie is coming out next year. To have it like minimum two years, probably more likely three is like <laughs> it is a detriment and i will say more to producing than anything particularly with the director although once you knew you were only getting one movie i would have tried to wrap it a little bit better i think you end um during the end of act two in this movie i don't think anything in the desert is important um in terms of no i liked it because it's him meeting the fremen and like oh i know i know but that's getting, that's movie, like just that's starting that's movie two though. Yeah, and that's they the have thing to hit ultimate... towards the next movie. I know, but like I think Zendaya helped on the press tour. She did. Yeah. She that bitch that, put in work. <laughs> that is that is it's hilarious those... how much work she's putting in. Like her work in mm -hmm. most interviews is more than she's in the film. Oh yeah. yeah. And I think that's I think that's one of the things that's just really frustrating is you cannot convince me that this is not a TV show. There's nothing about this that makes that screams movie to me. Even like people are like, well, the budget. I'm like, yeah, but TV shows are getting to these budgets. Like, mm -hmm. why am I watching? Why am I watching half a thing instead of, you know, why are you making the Game of Thrones show, the prequel show right now, instead of just doing Dune and it's the same company? <laughs> just I could do see that. Dune as a TV show, honestly. I, I think it would have worked great. And also, you know, a lot of the stuff that's like, I looked ahead on the show a little or on the books after this because I was like, I'm not the type that I'm going to wait three years. I'm going to go read it. And you go and read what happens in the next few Doom books. And I see why people talk about this as an unfilmable series. It breaks down quick from doable sci fi to like so deep cut that most people are going to be like, what the fuck is happening? Um, and I think that happens from one of my friends who's read them all uh, said the first one is for everyone. The second and third or for fans, everything past that is, you know, it's bad, but you're still going with it. Like, you're just like, I want to spend more time in this world. That's like, it's basically if like 75% of the Lord of the Rings series was the Cimmerillion, which no one reads. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's very interesting for like, it continues the story. Like there is no, like not to like spoil things. And I don't think it is there. It's very well known. There is no ending to Dune. Like even among fans, if you go and look it up, the first thing they talk about is there were two books that wrapped it up after um, Frank Herbert died and his son wrapped up the series. But before that, it ends on a cliffhanger. And most people don't consider the last two books to be canon because they're not like good in the fans' minds. So like, it's a very weird thing. Even like Dune, the first book doesn't really like have a full on ending. It ends on a cliffhanger. Do you know, so I've only, the battle that's hinted at through this film, is that at the end of book one or is that book two? It's at the know? end of book it's at the end of book one and also book two. There's okay. two different battles that they're discussing, basically. Okay. Um, a smaller one and a bigger one. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it's, and actually book three as well gets involved. Um, yeah, no, it's just, it gets wild. Um, I don't think Denny Villeneuve is going to like adapt the entire saga, honestly. I don't, I don't either. Let three, him do that. He wants to do three I know. films. He wants to do book yeah. and it's two movies. And then the, the second book is his yeah. third film. That's it. Well, and that's yeah. the thing. Um, book, <laughs> book two from what I, I like how I'm acting like I've read all these, but I literally just read the Wikipedia. I was like, you're discussing book two when I saw it and get my initial impressions, but go ahead. Uh, Well, I think it's, I think it's kind (laughs) of important. I think it's kind of important because we're talking about this as like a single film when like the majority of audiences have not read the whole, in the same way, majority of audiences haven't read Game of Thrones, Um, you know, and like, we're just going along for the ride when there's already a set destination and the destination i pretty sure is just going to piss off most audiences <laughs> so it's a very interesting sure. thing to be like huh up ahead is like the rails fall off the train you know the wheels fall <laughs> off the bus or whatever you want to say and like what it's coming and everyone's like yeah but this part's fun and it's like yeah but this has nothing to do with really what happens later mm-hmm. um, well just before Carson gives his first impressions, all I'm going to say <laughs> is I respect Denny Villeneuve for taking the risk. He's like, bitch, I'm manifesting part two, slapping part one on there. I don't give a fuck. Good for him. Oh, yeah. No, Bro, he's fucking, is- he even like enhances destiny by adding a part of part three randomly. No one thought like, I, have, <laughs> I have a good I have him. a I have a um, conspiracy theory I want to throw past you guys. Do you think it was always set to have two parts? And part of the, here, here's my real thought. Part of the uh, like overall promotion of the movie was, oh, if you guys don't watch it, there's no part two. Because that's why like a lot of my friends were like, oh, I got to go see it in theaters, not in HBO Max, because they've like told me that I have to watch it. Otherwise it won't uh, get a part two. And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that it was like a no because so, two things because they number... said the streaming numbers affected it a lot too i know they, but that, yeah that's what that they came publicly after said. everyone was mad at but that was i think that was mm. everyone after because the thing is ultimately i know they've said that but ultimately i think a lot of people like you know even one of my friends who hated this movie was like i'm so glad it got 40 million because it does deserve a part two and i'm like it definitely already had the part two like there's no way they weren't doing a part two if it puts part one. That's such a black eye for specifically Warner Brothers that they wouldn't have allowed it. It's like, <laughs> that's but Also, I don't thing. think that's like mainstream audiences are even aware of like anything like having to do with this. I'm, you know, I don't think the general I guess audience true. cares, which this is ultimately um, for general audiences, which is the inherent issue with Dune is the fact that this is a story. And you mentioned people are going to hate the destination. I imagine most people hate the journey. I've never seen this many walkouts during a movie than I did this one in my story. Oh my God, it's, mine too. Everyone left uh, because it's boring. Because here's the thing about Dune. I like Dune. <laughs> if you know the story, it's a really wonderful political drama, but very similar to, similar to the Star Wars prequels. People are not going into these movies wanting a political drama. I think that's one of the biggest things about the Star Wars prequels. I don't like Star Wars. I think they're all shit except for Rise of Skywalker. But God. the prequels, <laughs> at least they're trying, like they're giving a competent political drama. I love drama, that everyone just Whether or not you podcast. should or not. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Just like with Dune, you we got your mission free. We got your click. We don't really care what you do now. Um, but 
so it's trying to give this political drama. When you know it, I think it's really good. I think it's really intense. I think the twists and turns are shocking enough. But if you don't know the story and you go in expecting this big sci-fi action film that's easy to understand, this is not the case. Teenagers are going to be on their phone Snapchatting. They're going to miss the story and then they're just not going to care. Like this is not a film that is something general audiences can't appreciate. But if you're ever going to make Dune, you need to make it on the scale to where you have to have general audiences appreciate it. So I don't think part three will be made. I'm at the point where like, yeah, part two will probably happen. But I don't think part two, I think part two is going to be a massive flop. You can get people in the door for part one. Most people are going to hate part one. They're not going to return for part two. I enjoyed it though, just to get my overall thoughts. I thought it was good. I think aesthetically it's wildly disappointing compared to like Blade Runner 2049. And just like the colors of it are just so bland. But like all the visual effects obviously look good. The scale looks Well, good. they're in a desert. No, but like Blade Runner, when they went to Las Vegas, that was really cool. Never watched Blade Runner uh, 2049. Well, maybe well, you should. But um, I know. I, I would say, say the one issue I have with this and not now here's where I'm really going to piss off the rest of the audience who didn't already leave. I think Timothy Chalamet is bad in the movie. I'm going to say, <gasps> Oh, it. I love my boy. Right. He is my fan. And I, I love him. And I know that he can give really commanding performances in the King. I think he's phenomenal in this movie. I think he is like not good, but other than him, I like it all naked Oscar Isaac. You know, what, what else can you say? Oh my God, uh, that scene with naked Oscar Isaac. Like, I know he was suffering, but I was like, nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I think one of the interesting things is that um, he, going back to Timothy, I think he is really rough in this. Um, I think actually a lot of, like people are talking about the performance as being good. I think almost across the board, I didn't like most people. Um, and I think they're like, Honestly, I feel like it's one of my biggest problems with this movie is going back to it should be a series. I don't know who the fuck these characters are. There's one moment where they're like, hi, we're in this new place. And from what I understand in the book, it's like a year later that something else happens that like changes that status quo. And in this, it seems like the next day. And I was like, wait, what? Why are any of who cares? Why would you do all that? I mean, it's they're like... walking into a trap. Again, if you under, like, they're walking into a trap, so obviously it would happen quickly. You don't just let them, like, the point is, like, they've not settled. They don't have those defenses yet, so now they're, they Oh, I know, that's strike. fine, but, but I'm more saying, like, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I don't know who these characters are, especially the, Yeah, um, narratively, the it doesn't work. Yeah, it's, you yeah. have to, like, read the Wikipedia mean, beforehand though? to understand like, anything about like, it. I feel like they like established really well that the Harkonnens used to harvest the spices and then the emperor was like oh no no I got all that. we're gonna put the house in. like what do you mean I, well because okay so my problem is that they do that but there's like this plant it just makes like if you think about the emperor and the Harkonnens plan of what they do it's like the most convoluted way to like wipe someone out and I think it's because it's a rushed timeline. If it was like, oh, and we've left them for a year and then we do this, it's like, okay, that makes sense. Or however much but they have to, is. they're like surprised at attacking them. Yeah. Why would that it's make more sense? I make le like way less. Well, less it sense. makes it makes more sense for ultimately like why they would 
why wouldn't you just attack their little home planet? And I because don't, I, their home planet is like watery and like airy, and they but have they sea don't power say and air that. power. No, 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 no. Yes, they he don't. does. Oscar Isaac literally says they have sea power and air power. Air power. I listened to him. And then so they're like, I've like still, Caladan is a totally different planet from Arrakis. Okay. So no, like House um, of Trades okay. doesn't no, know no, how no, to no, operate no, on no, 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 we're not doing, we're not doing like, okay, we're talking in terms of like a story. Having it rushed like this makes me like, I don't care about any of these characters. Like we're sitting here and it's like, uh, you know, uh, okay. And then this happens and then this happens. And that's one of the like big things I've read with people who, you know, are fans of the book is like, every event is there but every moment isn't it's like yes all of the stuff happens but ultimately like i don't i'm not getting used to any of these characters i don't know any of their personalities before things are happening again and again and again there's like i and i think how it's do you not feel the conviction of paul though he's like seeing I aside have, his, the stress of all that he has a lot literally, to take in then his father is like killed the and only good thing about kid. paul is his name other than that, it is one of the most boring protagonists I've ever seen in film. Um, like in terms of like his arc, I was like, he just jumps into now I'm uh, the Messiah. And I was like, wait, what? Why? Why do you think that? If 300 people were saying they're praying to you and everyone him? was telling you that you're the Messiah. No, but that's that's new. It's only when he's in the desert that he's like, wait a second, I may be a god. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> calm down, boyo. Um, no, I mean, it's ultimately like, I think I gave this a 3.5 on Letterboxd. It's fine. Um, it's very much, uh, sure movie to me. And I think that it had the potential to be something significantly more interesting by not being in the medium it is. Um, and that's like, that's ultimately where I'm sitting is like, yeah, I would take, all of these characters if you gave you know you said timothy chalamet is bad if you gave him a chance to like you know when they're doing that scene where he's talking to the guy with the palm trees if they gave that more of a beat a show beat not a movie beat where it's not a minute long scene it's a 10 minute long scene and you like showed that he's like oh i'm trying to you know be the best leader and he's like maybe sometimes things are important and that's like you know, less important than the water that you need or something like that, um, which is basically what he says, but it's so rushed. You're like, oh, I don't even know what that scene really had to do. I've had a lot, I've heard a lot of people be like, you know, scenes like that were uninteresting. It's like, that was supposed to be a character building moment, but it was so rushed. You're like, I, I don't know what that was for. And I think ultimately that's the problem with this movie is there's just, a, there's no characters. They're ultimately like, just like, and I think that they exist I just don't think you see them in this movie. I liked a lot of the characters. I gave this movie five stars. I thought it fucked. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to go five stars. I think it's like, yeah. I don't have any like deep emotions. I think it's going to really live or die with a part two. I'm just like here mm -hmm. for it. I like the story. I like the characters. I think it's intriguing. I think this is a good like way, like a good director bringing this to life. I have two things to say. Number one, I agree with you, Paul. I've said for years, I cannot think of a piece of media that wouldn't be like the most best like the best form of it would be a 10-part series like I just think that's the ideal thing for every single piece of media out there number two though okay well we're gonna disagree there but go for well, it that's fine number two <laughs> have either of you seen Lynch's version no I, have I was gonna rewatch. I was gonna watch it before but I just 
didn't this week. I slightly prefer that version to this because I think it just makes more choices and is more memorable. I think the aesthetic is way stronger and just like all around, I think it's stronger. But Paul, you might enjoy that more. I don't know. Yeah, I've, I've it heard try. it's also like, I've also heard it's campy. I meant to. I have watched the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, um, which was a wild thing to watch because, um, so I watched it in school and um, for extra credit. And <laughs> I watched it completely going in without knowing anything about Dune or Jodorowsky. So trying to watch a movie about a director trying to make a version of Dune and not knowing anything about anything was wild. But he was doing crazy stuff. And I feel like it is supposed to be crazier. Um, you know, to your point, Alina, I think they did take a lot of... Um, other cultures influences and their design and stuff but i think because of that it doesn't feel as wild as i think it was originally supposed to i think it just feels more like okay yeah visually. i don't think it's supposed to be wild i think it's supposed to be like just rooted in humanity that's like well, how i, I think, interpreted it i think in the book and like in the and the fans readings like if you look at like pictures of the same characters they're always mm -hmm. insane looking um like <laughs> if you look at fan art or like you know illustrations of it they're always the craziest looking characters it's like you know game of thrones with its goblins and you know how but the like they're just humans it's just in the future i think well the, Except uh, for Harkonnen. maybe the Harkonnens. I have no idea. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> Those yeah. dudes are weird looking. They can yeah, fly and, also, and humans cannot fly. Yeah, so that... the mm -hmm. Harkonnens are human in uh, the Dune uh, Lynch version, right? There's a, mm -hmm. yeah. yes. Okay. Um, Here's something I thought was interesting. Um, I was reading when I was writing like my initial review from TIFF. And apparently, like, House Atreides is literally descended from, like, Atreus from, like, Greek mythology, which is super interesting to me. Atreus is, like, the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus, who are, like, big heroes during the Trojan War. Um, and, like, those two brothers are together, like, called the Atreides. Like, Atreides means sons of Atreus. So that was very interesting to me. I, like... When I was in university, I minored in Greek and Roman studies, and at Carleton, a lot of the Greek stuff was not, like, classical Greece, like, Plato and, like, all that bullshit. We did, like, Bronze Age Greece, so, like, I took so many courses, like, specifically on that age, like, around the time that the Iliad and the Trojan War would be taking place, um, so, like, I picked up so many, like, elements of that within um, Villeneuve's Dune, like the bullheads that were throughout the film were really, really interesting to me. Um, Carson was saying that apparently the bull isn't like as big of a thing in the books, but um, on Crete during the Bronze Age, it wasn't like technically in Greek, but like we consider it Greek now. Um, there was like the Minoan civilization and they um, got like wiped out probably by the sea peoples we don't know but like they are super known for having all these frescoes and stuff on their walls of like them like bull jumping um, and then so like in dune there's a statue of like a man bullfighting and then like paul and oscar isaac mention at one point that like the the grandfather of house of Trades used to like be bullfighting and whatever so 
I think it's just so fucking neat how like well incorporated um the Bronze Age Greece elements are in Dune because like in the Minoan civilization um the bull is a symbol of man having like the bull jumping and stuff is supposed to be like men having power over nature and I think that works really well within the context of Dune and like how they're going to like Arrakis and trying to like tame the desert and things like that so that was something I just had to geek out on first it's cool it's cool yeah no and I'm not saying that like I disliked this movie I did enjoy myself it really was the last like I want to say 40 minutes okay when I say it it sounds insane where I was like, okay, I'm a little bored, but I was like totally fucking with this movie before that. Um, but I just, I knew there was a point where you knew that none of these storylines were going to wrap up at whatsoever. And I was just going to have to wait three years. And I think it got really annoying. And I don't think I ultimately I blame Warner brothers. They should have shot it all at once. And then released this. If this was coming next year, I'd be like, yeah, it's fine that it was half a movie. It's that it's possibly coming. And if it comes, it's in two to three years. And two is like really pushing it. Two would be like- I don't know why Warner Brothers just didn't do it that way. Like, I honestly don't get it. It's a little like the MCU, isn't it? In that sense, where it's just like, how am I possibly supposed to care with like something that's realistically more like three or four? Yeah, Years and uh, well, and actually, you know, what's interesting is um, one of my friends keeps saying that about the MCU is like, I'm struggling to care anymore because they'll tease something. And I'm like, yeah, but when are you teasing that? Like, you know, they're introducing characters and they're like, oh, look, they're coming back. Abomination was back in Shang-Chi. Sure, he wasn't in a movie for literally a decade, but does that matter? And it's like, yes, it does matter. <laughs> <laughs> yes i do not want to wait a decade for you to like re make something that you showed earlier important um i don't know it's like it's that kind of stuff that's like a little frustrating especially when you're talking about three movies and you know um that's that's a long time away that's like six years that we're gonna be sitting with the story and i'm not sold that it's worth six years lord of the rings only got three years to your point alina Mm-hmm. <laughs> like three years and we finished the lord of the Rings saga which is like yeah it's doable harry is this like is this enough story to live as long as all of the harry potter series like because how work. long it took for marvel to get to fucking infinity war and endgame yeah exactly. i mean avatar mm-hmm. 2 is coming a little bit it's a little longer between <laughs> one and two for avatar <laughs> the, <whole laughs> the thing is but avatar ended and like he decided to make more after after it made the most money of all time um like other than Which that is the concept is so bizarre because i never hear people talk about avatar like it's just gone from pop culture and like why are they making like seven more I love that um, it's so irrelevant, yet it's still in Florida. They decided to build a theme park for it, like just randomly. Really? So Wait, did you watch? Is it like its own you watch, theme park? Or? Yeah. Did you watch well, the Jenny Nicholson video? Yes, I did. It's part. So, like, imagine how Disneyland has different areas. One of the areas yeah. is the world of what is I don't even know what it's called, but it's like the Avatar Animal world. Animal Kingdom. But is that Disney World? Is that it's Animal, Animal Kingdom? Yeah. It's Animal Kingdom. Okay, so, <clears throat> um, gonna nerd <laughs> out for a second and bring it back to Harry Potter which is not bringing it back to Dune, but we're getting closer. Um, Avatar World originally um, was not the plan, but um, the plan was Harry Potter World. But 
jk rowling wanted a yeah wanted a full fucking hogwarts express train and they were like we can't figure out how to do this because having people go and leave on the hogwarts express train would take like so much time and it would be the most popular thing it would just be constantly like you'd be waiting in line to get to hogwarts which is fucking um, hilarious basically. can we talk about how disneyland just quickly mentioned couldn't figure out a train like okay yeah but continue well <laughs> that's the funniest part but uh so they were like okay well we can't do that because it would back the lines up to a crazy amount so what they ended up doing was not going with them they went to universal instead um and uh fucking they just bought avatar right after the movie came out and you know how long a theme park takes and by that point avatar was irrelevant so that's why avatar world exists it opened 2017 it's called pandora the world of avatar and we will be going clappercast one day <laughs> meet up at pandora um, we'll go, subscribe we'll, to our Patreon so we can do stupid bullshit like that and vlog it for you guys. Thank you. I'm sure by the time Avatar <laughs> 2 releases, it will be like, we'll be rich enough from this podcast. So we'll go for Avatar exactly. 2. Exactly. Oh, We're I trying to assume. be the next Joe Rogan, the next call her daddy. Let's get on that, people. <laughs> I don't want a real job. <laughs> Alina would also leave the podcast for some weird looking man. Um. Um, how <laughs> dare you? I have very good taste in men. I only date hot dudes. <laughs> I like how that's the, that's your really good taste. It's like not their personalities, just their. um, Listen, I am known to pull a hot guy, so fuck off. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no. There's some text uh, messages uh, that might dispute that, but we can continue. (laughs) But going back to, uh, going back to Dune, um, I, I do have hope. And especially if, Denny can, uh, you know, take some of the weirder elements of the second half of this book and cut them out, then I do think that there's like a real series. Uh, I just think that like the current version of especially the second half of Dune is going to be like, people are going to be like, what the fuck is happening? Um, Like Carson, to your point, walkouts. um, I think it would be like mass walkouts during some of the like twists in this that are just like, what? Um, yeah, I just hope Denise Villanueva can do it because that's I have faith in him. <laughs> that's how Lights Cameron Jackson pronounces his name. So is that how you? No, it's Villeneuve. I know. I, 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 I know. Aware. No, I mean like. No, I'm just like. Ew, I There's a that. lovely like, compilation somewhere of him trying to pronounce his name. It, every Benny time Villeneuve it is the one Frenchman I respect, so I will pronounce his name correctly. So. R.A.P. Alexandra. <laughs> I mean, we could do a clap oh, live from his house. <laughs> we do have weird connections to his house, so. Director Denis Villeneuve. Director Dennis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Director Denis Villeneuve. Director Denis Villeneuve. Director Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> so good. I don't think Denny Villeneuve would appreciate if we like stalked him at his house because based on it, it's pretty like on lock and private. So like also I respect him. So we should respect the man's privacy Carson. Um, okay. The last thing I wanted to say about Dune and like another reason why I liked it so much is I really enjoyed the Islamic theology elements to it. Like, again, I didn't know anything about Dune going into it. So I wasn't expecting any of that but when they were saying like Arabic words, and they called Paul the Mahdi, and I was like, oh my god, what is happening? Um, so, like, that was something that was really special to me, because, like, those are stories and, like, words that I grew up with, 
with like my family and that's never ever something I see in like mainstream media so it was really cool just it was really fucking cool like seeing like my religion kind of on screen like it was just really nice and I feel like um it's handled in a really like respectful way like the elements that they did take from like um the Islamic hadith and whatever um it was just it was really cool really it's nice it was special to me just this this whole movie and like all of the like themes to it are just things that are very special to me so I liked it yeah I did as well I'm sorry Paul's such a hater but that's okay um <laughs> Okay, let's take a break from the Chalamet because if we talk about him for too long, I'm just going to have a heart attack of excitement. Uh, Let's jump over to Netflix. I don't know why we're doing this film. I didn't want to do this film just to be very clear, but we're talking about Night Me neither. (laughs) So this was Paul. (laughs) Paul randomly, like uh, literally the day before we record this podcast was like, I watched this. We're doing it. Sure. Okay. You're like, all right. (laughs) So Netflix is Night Teeth. I will guess I'll start us off on this because it does have Debbie Ryan. I did like I didn't know Queen. she was in it and I screamed. Um, <laughs> this is a Netflix vampire film. Takes place in LA about these two vampires and the sky. Like they're gonna go around and kill a bunch of people, and it's very convoluted because there's this whole pact where vampires can't kill innocent people, but they can go to like blood banks, and it's just this really convoluted mess. Like dare I say, even more convoluted at times than Dune. Um, but it's not good. It is very, very like stylistically, it's very strange with its colors, um, with its directing style. And I don't like hate all of it. I think Debbie Ryan is fine. I think the main character is fine. Like there are some little fun moments, but it just felt boring. This is so long at 107 minutes. I cannot believe this was like not an 85 minute feature. Um, it's not that fun. It's the kills are nothing really. Um I really the only thing I liked was the ending, I guess. There was like something at the ending I liked, but I won't spoil that for you because really it's just not a good film, I guess, is my thesis at the end of the day. Alina, I think you're probably uh, equally not as happy with this one. Yeah, it just felt like really bland. Um, like normally vampires are pretty interesting and it felt like they were trying to like add something to the vampire genre especially with this whole like packed thing between like the humans and the vampires but it just didn't work and I was like mad as I was watching it because like there's a decent amount of people in this that I like enjoy like I like Debbie Ryan I fucking great on Sweet Life on Deck fucking loved that show growing up and I also liked Insatiable that's the controversial thing to say but I thought it was a fun and stupid show she's great on it so like and then Alexander Ludwig appears towards the end um Megan Fox is in this at one point so Sydney Sweeney and I'm like you would think that all of these elements would come together but they just don't like Debbie Ryan vampire mildly interesting but the other one zoe i think her name is i don't know the actress so fucking annoying like god every time she talked she like made me mad i was like shut shut the hell up bitch oh my god and then the driver who's like the human character so fucking boring i was like just drink his blood i don't give a fuck about him like there was just this it just nothing about it clicked nothing gelled and I was like why you have things here that make would make the story like mildly interesting you just fucked it up but are we surprised 
No, not at all. It's Netflix. <laughs> I don't know if you're trying to quote Love Rock. I feel like you probably were, but that is my favorite clip of The Rock ever. Shut the hell up, bitch. It's my yeah. favorite thing he's on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I think I might need to make an executive decision moving forward and just say we're not covering Netflix originals like this. Because after this, there was Gunpowder Milkshake, Kate. I think there was another one also. Like, these are all just bland. Like, they're not good. <laughs> I don't want to be reductive and be like, Netflix originals are not good because there are quite a few that are fine. But like, it's this like B-level action thriller that's just like, they're not good. They're not fun to watch. They're not fun to talk about. Paul, why did you make us watch this? Oh, I can very easily tell you why I prompted you guys to watch this. Because Netflix pitched this as the Megan Fox and Sydney Sweeney vampire movie. <laughs> you know what this movie isn't? The Sydney Sweeney and Megan Fox vampire movie. <laughs> like Literally. Um, I mean, so originally we were going to watch Ron's Gone Wrong. Um, but I don't know if like our listeners know this. But it is very hard for me, a boy who cannot get the screeners in L.A., uh, screenings in LA early um, to like watch three movies in one weekend um, to record on Sunday. Same. And, and Alina couldn't watch um, either Ron's Gone Wrong or The French Dispatch. Let's be clear. The option was, I was like, oh, we can talk about it if you're already seeing it. If not, we don't need to do a third film. So it's not like we were looking for one. Oh, I know. But like, <laughs> I did want something that Alina could pop in on and it was spooky season, you know, and I really thought. I get it. I also thought that this was going to be about Megan Fox and Sydney Sweeney. And so I also thought I had already told Alina to watch Night Teeth um, that we were discussing it. And I did, I said, we had it as an option, but I thought she had said, yes, let's do that. And then I told Carson that we were doing it. And so it was like a, it was like a backwards falling into us watching us uh, to the point where I watched it at night against my will. So literally all of us watched it against our will, but it was like, uh, <laughs> the funniest part about this movie is again, I'll put in a, a conspiracy theory. I 100% believe that the original cast of this movie probably either pitched to or like was in negotiations pre-COVID was Megan Fox and Sydney Sweeney. The characters are Megan Fox and Sydney Sweeney's characters again. Just like you would have nice Sydney Sweeney versus like hunty Sydney Sweeney, who she plays in this. Um, other than that, it's like, yeah, no, those are the same roles and we just have other characters playing them. And it is so weird because there is a moment. I don't know if you guys have ever watched True Blood. If not, mm -mm. 100% should. Um, it's fantastic. But there was a moment when Megan Fox, Sydney Sweeney, and Alfie Allen all show up. And they're like these like boozy vampire royalty. And I was like, oh, this is True Blood. You stole True Blood in a way that I, since True Blood's currently not on, I don't really particularly mind. Like, I miss this, like, kind of campy vampire politics. They're like, humans are disgusting, but, like, we have issues if we don't, like, treat them a little bit better. I was so excited for all of that. And then it's one scene, um, which is one of the wildest things. I was so ready for them to, like, take center stage for the rest of the movie. And then there's, like, a twist in the scene. And I was like, oh. Um, but I will say, 
fucking loved Alfie Allen in this. Um, Carson, he was good. You don't know who Alfie is. Um, He's from Game of Thrones. Um, And he plays like the lamest character in Game of Thrones. He's like most people's like least favorite character. Um, And in this, he has a different haircut, obviously, but like he could have kept it long and it felt right. But I think this look was good for him. And honestly, is a good calling card for him moving into more mainstream, uh, like uh, front roles, uh, starring kind of roles. I enjoyed him. I enjoyed some aspects of Lucy Fry's character. I enjoyed Megan Fox and Sydney Sweeney. Everything with the humans was terrible. Um, and it felt like, I don't know, I just, there was nothing about that particular aspect that really got to me i don't know um what you guys felt about it um in terms of if you liked anything (laughs) but i think there were moments where i was like this is a better movie than what i'm getting and i feel like that's a very common thing with netflix like they'll have like Mm -hmm. a thing where i'm like oh that's great and then they just like they just really don't execute things very well is the problem because they're like when before when you were gone Carson and I were saying like there's stuff to this they are trying to like do a spin on the vampire genre they just fuck it up really badly and make it bland yeah (laughs) and I I completely agree with you um and the funny thing is though if they announced a prequel with Megan and Sweeney which is um what I've read in almost every review is I wish this would happen and Netflix reads all those and I do believe that that's what will be announced um or somehow vampires can come back to life or they weren't shown spoilers for a movie um weren't shown taken out in their one scene actually it doesn't matter it's a short film uh, <laughs> their one scene they do not make it apparently um but I do think it leaves it open that they could have uh I think I don't understand why they didn't just cast them in the main roles like I really it doesn't make sense I really were they busy I assume it was a COVID thing because both of them are very busy right now uh Sydney Sweeney doing literally every project and Megan Fox um sucking Machine Gun Kelly's cock um but (laughs) (laughs) um I don't think i mean like the other two you know lucy fry who doesn't really have a huge career and it's not bella thorne but it might as well be oh debbie ryan debbie ryan uh <laughs> did, wait did you just say debbie ryan might as well be bella thorne um am i wrong yes you're gonna I, look at me and tell so. me that i'm wrong <laughs> i've never watched i didn't watch jesse and be like there's bella thorne so i mean i never watched jesse because i'm an adult but um Jesse is good actually that was like one of the last I'm sure it feels like shows. a party every day but it, <laughs> they have the same vibe um like especially in their Netflix projects they're like always the the hot redhead who is a little bad but ultimately has a good heart well less so in Bella Thorne's case she's almost always actually insane in her films but um I do think that it's that same sort of vibe, but she was fine. Um, I didn't think she was particularly great. Um, and also the world building felt very, I don't know if you guys watched it bright. Do you remember bright? 
felt the mm -hmm. same way where it's like almost cool, but why is there so much stuff you're not telling us? And then instead focusing on a small story in this world. Um, I don't know. I want to like it more. And I think it seems to be from what I read on Twitter, no one liked this, um, which is sad. Like it's supposed to be one of those movies where like, you know, the average teenager likes it, but it seems like teenagers were really coming in for Sydney Sweeney and Megan Fox. And I don't actually understand. A lot of people thought that that was what this movie was. So I don't know what aspect of the marketing or the, um, however it was revealed in like variety and all this stuff in the trades about how this movie was, why everyone thinks it's those two as the stars. Um, uh, <laughs> It's Maybe a really they just heard thing. and just assumed because they're like such big things right now. Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, well, Sydney Sweeney especially is not that big a star, which I think retroactively makes you believe that she could be in a Netflix movie as the star. Mm -hmm. um, and especially I, since like Megan Fox is kind of like making her Hollywood comeback right now. I could see why people would assume. Yeah, I... Um, I really think if they had starred, this movie would have been a lot better because I don't mm -hmm. think that um, Lucy and Debbie really had like a strong we've lived together for a million years or whatever these characters are supposed to be alive for uh, compared yeah, to even the five minutes of Sydney and Megan. I was like, oh yeah, I believe these two have just like been vibing for centuries. Um, and I don't particularly even like Megan. Fox's acting I don't think she was particularly amazing in this but she was very true bloody which I've missed you know sometimes mm -hmm. you need some campy fun well sometimes we just need fun in the world and who better to provide that than Wes Anderson when you're having a bad day you can just go and enjoy a Wes Anderson feature this is the other Timothy Chalamet project this today this week Paul why don't you introduce the French Dispatch? Did this, did this, you know, capture your heart like some Wes Anderson films have, or was this overall disappointment? <sighs> okay, so Wes Anderson was my favorite director when I was in high school. Um, this would have been uh, like 2010 was when I graduated, so around like the 2006 to 2010 era um, of Wes Anderson where he wasn't popular yet. I don't want to sound like a hipster, but I mean, like, literally, he wasn't popular yet. But, like, some people thought he was cool. Um, Royal Tenenbaums was my favorite, but pretty much everything he was doing was cool. I remember going, Darjeeling Limited doesn't work for me, but it still got some interesting things. And then something happened with him where his characters lived in sterile worlds but they felt real. And suddenly all of his characters became as sterile as the worlds they're in outside of his animated, every single animated I thought was pretty good um, or really liked. Uh, but then his live actions just each time, um, especially like hotel, uh, hotel Budapest, is that what it is? Grand Budapest Hotel. I yeah, actually love Grand Budapest, you. but agree. Um, I watched it. I literally watched it once, and I was like, "I don't. This doesn't work for me anymore." And I've I seen think it quite a few times. I think it's I think because it's, I. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. No, you. Can I was just gonna in. say it's my favorite. <laughs> um, 
And that totally makes sense. Uh, Royal mm-hmm. Tenenbaums is like far and away my favorite. And we talked about this on the classic Clapper cast that I'm a little like retroactively less intrigued by it. And it's because I see the flaws that later come up in his movies. So let's get to French Dispatch. So I go into this and I am fully ready because it's a series of shorts to be like, yes, actually this does work for me because he's able to get back to like storytelling and, you know, uh, because he's not being so lackadaisical, he's going to really like focus on character beats and it'll be, you know, quick and a lot of different actors and varied. No, no. In fact, actually what happened is Wes Anderson went, what if I did New Yorker stories that 2% of the population read and stretch those out to three episodes of a movie length thing and not do anything with the characters. And so all of these stories, there's, um, there's three main stories and then two smaller stories within this, um, including like a frame story, which is very like Canterbury Tales. Um, all of it just feels so boring. Ultimately, <laughs> I'm like, I'm really trying to come up with a different word, but I was just like, I don't care about these characters. And then that story would end and it not really end. It was just like, yeah, some things happen to these characters, but they don't care that it's happening to them and you don't care that it's happening to them. So we're going to the next people. They don't really care what's happening to them. You don't really care what's happening to them. Moving on to the next people. And they do this three times. And by the third time, I was like, I cannot anymore. Um, I, I don't know if you've been to a theater post COVID, but, um, I started having a tickle in my throat and I was like, thank God I have a reason to leave the theater for five minutes. So I went out and got some water and was like, okay, I'm fine. And I went back into the theater and I was like, yeah, I still don't care, but I was hoping it would refresh me. It was during, uh, the final one with Jeffrey Wright. Um, and I was like, maybe I'll like this now when I come back, I still did not, um, Ultimately, like I gave this a half star on Letterboxd and it's because I refuse in my reviews to ever consider like how pretty something looks as a overall like um, effort of quality. Because if that was the case, then I would just watch some pretty, I would look at pretty photos. I would look at, film is supposed to be narrative First and foremost, um, when I review things, for the most part, it is for the story. It's for the emotional beats. If there are no emotional beats, and there are movies that I, Lamb, doesn't have strong emotional beats, but I feel like as a story, it works really well. This doesn't have emotional beats and doesn't have a story. And people who, you know, I've read a lot on Twitter, people being like, oh, you're suddenly not liking Wes Anderson's? Like, no. I was Wes Anderson's biggest champion in high school. My entire personality was telling people to watch Royal Tenenbaums. Um, (laughs) Even in college, like when I went to art school, I was suddenly around my people who all liked Wes Anderson. So like, no, I love his stuff. I think he's completely lost his way. Uh, This is such a like emperor's new clothes scenario where you're like, oh, do you have nothing else to tell us about the world? Are you just going to keep telling us that like your weird quirky characters have no interest in anything that's going on, even though they're revolutionaries and all this stuff. Cool. You said that in 2001, 
it is 20 years ago now. Like you can't keep doing that as your like thesis. Um, you know, you look at someone like Hitchcock or any of these people with like long histories, they changed, they failed, they did something different. He's failing and doing the exact same thing. So no, unless his like next project is something radically different, I'm like kind of over him. I don't care. Like, sure, it's pretty to look at. I liked looking at the stills more. I liked watching the trailer more than I liked watching the film, which is the worst way to feel about a film when you finish. Carson, I'm curious about your opinion, though. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this one's kind of embarrassing for Wes Anderson, if I'm being honest. I will say, first off, I'm happy you admit Lamb is terrible. So I'm happy we're finally on the same page there. But um, no, I mean, this movie's Lamb, not good. Lamb it's will all, up- I will be hurt. Thank you, I'm speaking. Um, <laughs> that thought also just didn't sound that important, actually. So I don't think you need to Lamb say Lamb will be in my oh. top five films of the year. Just same. Is. I think it's my favorite. You know, I think that episode's actually filled by other people. I don't think you need to be there. So that's good. Um, no, I don't think this movie's that good. It's, you know, technically strong, but it's entirely style over substance, which at this point, this is what, the 10th feature film from Wes Anderson. Nothing in this is as good as Grand Budapest Hotel from a technical standpoint. So why do you need to reduce the story? Why can't you give us meaningful theses, meaningful characters, meaningful arcs? If this was his first film ever, sure. You are experimenting with what you can do, not just narratively, but also visually, whatever. But you've done this before and also given us story, given us characters, given us things to think about and chew on and feel memorable. This is just boring. Like, it's so reductive to what Wes Anderson can be. And I'm a massive Wes Anderson fan. I think Grand Budapest Hotel is fantastic. Royal Tenenbaums, one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, You know, there's so many. His animated films are wonderful. But there's consistent times where he gets lost. He gets lost in different aesthetic choices. Moonrise Kingdom, I think, is a very big uh, you know, example of this. I think Moonrise Kingdom is quite poor, if I'm being honest. But I think this one's like kind of embar- embarrassing. I really didn't like this one. I will say Timothy Chalamet is a lot better in this one than Dune. Um, I like all the performances. Like everything is operating well. There's just no purpose. You know, you'll get one line of meaning in every story. And I also just think the structure doesn't help. You tell the audience immediately that there's going to be four stories, basically three main stories, an opening, and then an epilogue um, closing. And so the audience immediately registers that. So when you're getting into a story, number one, they're all basically short films, right? So you immediately cannot really like lose yourself in it because you know it's short, you know it's going to be ending soon, you know that you have to get through two other films or three other films or one other short film. And just by the time you get to the end, it's exhausting. This is a taxing film. It is a boring film. It just sucks because I like so many things in it. But the only piece that's like memorable is like, wow, Francis McDormand took Timothy Chalamet's virginity. Other than that, like, it's not memorable. There's just nothing here. And I found that really disappointing because I love Anderson. I was waiting for this for over a year. Um, and I'm not happy with what I got. Yeah, no, I was too. And I think that's why I'm so frustrated with people just giving it a pass. Uh, and I actually will push back a little bit. I don't think this cast is particularly good. Um, you watch uh, Tilda Swinton and she's doing the same voice that she did in Snowpiercer in a well, really weird character difference. I was like sitting there. I was like, oh, this is the same. Like 
her inclinations on certain things. It just felt like they didn't care. They knew they were doing this for Wes and like, I get to be in a Wes Anderson movie and it's only a couple days shoot. I'll just like do my bare minimum. None of them and are that's... challenged. They're all going through the motions. Del Toro yeah. especially really stuck out to me in that aspect. I think Wilson is probably the only one who I felt like gave something different than what you'd expect. But even then it wasn't like a challenging performance or anything. Um, actually, uh, speaking of Wilson, I was going to bring this up. Uh, Wilson's thing, um, which I see a lot of people, his he has a very short, if you haven't seen it, it's like three to five minutes. It's not a main um, story. It's no. like, that's how much uh, film value It's <laughs> basically just introducing the city of, and we haven't talked about this, Ennui. Fuck off. You called your town Ennui? What are you, in high school? Like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It got Alina laughing, uh, so. It, you know? <laughs> no, it's just the way Paul said it. <laughs> it's so annoying. And I thought it was just a one-off joke, and then I realized that's the whole premise is that the whole city is called Ennui. Um, oh my God. Uh, but he reuses one of the funniest jokes from Royal Tenenbaums, which is Danny Glover walking with Angelica Houston. Danny Glover falls in a pit and Angelica Houston keeps talking. They reuse this exact same joke with Owen Wilson on a bike and Owen Wilson falls in the bike and the camera keeps following nothing at that point. And it's like, I'm sorry, you can't do that. You don't have enough films to where I've forgotten your jokes. Like, we're supposed to be like your fans that have like followed you and watched all these movies a hundred times, which I have on most of them. And I know that that's an old joke. No, no. And it like, the audience like didn't laugh. And it was like, that was a funny joke, but everyone knows that joke already. It's like when you go to a standup and they're like, hey, what if I tell this old joke? And you're like, yeah, it's kind of funny but like I, I was expecting some new material. Um, no, I'm so annoyed. Like I, I try not to, um, after getting called Mr. Price's grumpy show, I've been trying to be like nicer about some certain things. No, this really pissed me off because it really feels like he's just going through the motions in a way that's like, I'm just trying to get to, uh, you know, my next project. And like, I'll do this like love letter, even like, this is not a spoiler at all, but the film ends with this film is dedicated to, and it's like some of the most famous short writers. I was like, what are you talking about? Most of these people would be like, what is this? It's such a, like, <laughs> it feels so like inside baseball for like people who read the New Yorker, which like I read the New Yorker, but I'm not going to like, fucking make a whole ass movie about how much I love the New Yorker. But here's make a the documentary. Issue. Make a documentary. If you wanted to do something about how important the New Yorker is, do a Wes Anderson documentary. That would have been cool. Even do like your own like, you know, uh, cutaways to the characters like doing certain things and like you use famous actors in place of cool. Why are you doing a film that you're ultimately I think I was reading that like two out of the three stories are legitimately just adaptations of New Yorker articles, which is this whole conversation of whether this is an originally adapted screenplay for the Oscars. If this gets nominated, Jesus. Um, the script is terrible. Um, the only thing, uh, Carson, go ahead. I will hop in in a second to say the one scene I liked. Well, I was go just going to say, to your credit, this is not a love letter to journalism. I would even push back. It's not a love letter to the New Yorker. It's a love letter to journalist 
like the journalists that exist in the aesthetic and fantasy of Wes Anderson. This is so void of the real like journalistic experience. What any like reality it exists in a very heightened Wes Anderson fantasy that it doesn't even work as a love letter to that art. This is a love letter to the aesthetic of journalism specifically within Wes Anderson. It doesn't work on any other level of like realism or capturing real life or capturing these real people or real characters. It just isn't. Like, it's like looking at Dune and being like, this is a, you know, I, this is, a, you know, a cre like, uh, this is dedicated to the people who like went to the moon. It's like, no, it fucking isn't. Shut up. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you, especially um, when you look at actually the three journalists that are the main stories, all of them are not great journalists. One of them fucks her, uh, you know, her main subject. Another person doesn't write about his subject. And then the third one is a character in her own story. <laughs> like all of these people like really messed up in terms of like their actual like journalistic qualities. And like, is that what this is saying? That journalists should not be like uh, objective in their reporting and like just do whatever the hell you want. And it's going to be great anyway. Because like, Honestly, like, I do think that the last story would have been more interesting if we hadn't had the whole subplot, or the entire plot, uh, you know, Jeffrey Wright's story about the kidnapping. If you had just talked about this great chef, that would have been interesting. And then have the, you know, it's just like, it's so weird that this film constantly is like, oh, yeah, um, these people actually were right. And, you know, Bill Murray is wrong. Especially, she right like, she rents a fucking like resort room to go write her article just for like no reason and it's like <laughs> well look how quirky journalists are like jack isn't paying for my resort room he should but he isn't so <laughs> well and overall just like you sit there and all of these characters uh especially and it's not a spoiler at all because this is like the first scene in the movie bill murray's characters died and then closes the company and it's like this whole storyline that they introduce and then it doesn't really matter. I was like, I will tell you during that part, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm into this. Um, but back to the one scene I liked, there's one scene I liked uh, where uh, Benicio del Toro is painting Leah. Sado. I forgot to look up how to pronounce her name. I meant to, and he's painting her fully nude. And I was like, this is like Wes Anderson-y, like, why are you naked for no reason? But then she gets dressed and she's a guard. And for like one minute, I was like, that's pretty cool. Because you've introduced all these like uh, dynamics in their relationship. Like she likes to be the model, which the model is all about being seen and all this stuff. And then it goes nowhere. There's no conversation about that. It was like, it's like something that feels like high art all of a sudden and feels like Wes Anderson. Ultimately, actually, going back, none of this feels like Wes Anderson. It doesn't feel like his stuff about, like, I'm saying something about the world secretly, which was what was cool about him. This is just, like, what's on screen is what you're seeing. Like, the dumbest person you know will get this movie 100%, which is so frustrating. It feels like <laughs> a Royal film Tenet student who had an assignment to, like, make a Wes Anderson fil short film, and then they put them all together as, like, a school project. That's what it yeah, feels and like. I'm also somehow so got Owen that. Wilson. You know, that's yeah, that's one thing. Um, I'm also annoyed because I was like expecting this to be like in my top five of the year. 
I was really expecting like this isn't going to be a return to form. You know, he's I really liked Isle of Dogs, which actually I will say as an aside, I've been looking at ranking all the Wes Anderson films. They have Isle of Dog last, last, last. Who? <laughs> they have Isle of Dog, like Entertainment yeah. Weekly. I want to say Vulture, maybe AV Club. People like hate all of movie. them. Yeah. What? Why? I don't know. That's like, it's so weird because it's like, that's the most Wes Anderson-y of the animated films. Like, I particularly like um, Fantastic Mr. Fox, but that is a children's movie. It is not a animated Wes Anderson, um, mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing. Sometimes you can do different things. I do just want to say the most interesting thing about Wes Anderson to me is like, everybody has a different Wes Anderson movie. And like, some people hate some that I love like Carson hates Moonrise Kingdom and Moonrise Kingdom is like one of my favorites like it's just really interesting so I don't know maybe when I eventually get to see French Dispatch maybe I'll fucking like it I don't know would love if movies all got released at the same fucking time I'm actually really curious (laughs) and uh because our listeners probably would be interested once you do see it we'll do like a little aside where we can discuss it um because I'm sure Unless you hate it. <laughs> like, if yeah. you're just like, you're like, you know what, guys? You were right. Uh, I really won't. hope we get it less next week, but who knows? Um, I'm shocked this one they did in limited release, considering it was so like, ad- like advertised so heavily for the 22nd. Yeah. I, it's me. very weird. I missed um, that about last, last year is better because everything just came out online at the same time. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Good times. I know. And before we go any further, let's hear a word about the sponsor for today's episode. Well, Paul, it is that time for the final time this year, your Halloween, Road to Halloween series. Uh, what films did you decide to close the series out this year with? Okay, so um, I had forgotten that I am a very smart person. <laughs> and Debatable, but okay. I... Um, <laughs> When I would choose movies, I was literally just like, oh, yeah, these kind of fit. And I will say to my credit, <laughs> almost every time there is an additional layer of why these films work together. And this one actually feels like the closest to like a perfect double feature. Um, so the two films are Peeping Tom and The Night of the Hunter. But what's interesting is I chose these as classic horror films. But also, both of these films ruined the director's career and they basically never did anything again because people were like oh my god this is such a weird film um it's not to our sensibilities and now are considered like some of the greatest horror films of all time which is so wild uh when we get into these because i think they're both like absolutely fantastic and i 100 percent see why one of them was immediately uh you know rebuked but i do not get the second one Um, So the first one we'll talk about is the 1960 film Peeping Tom. It's directed by Michael Powell, uh, starring Carl Boehm and Anna Massey. And it's about a serial killer who films his victims' last moments and um, their dying uh, moments and then watches them obsessively. Uh, I'm very curious what you guys thought about this. I really like this one. I thought this was really strong. I love the British aesthetic. I think the production design and score are fantastic. The score really knocked it out of the park. 
Um, I think I think it like has a great opening, a good middle, and then an amazing end. Like once you get the reveals, once you get that final ten minutes, I in the whole like thesis of all the serial killer and everything comes out. I think it really lands a conclusion. Um, I wouldn't say it's like a masterpiece, but like I really did like this one. I thought this was one of your stronger picks uh, this year, let's say. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. Um, Like, because I freaking love serial killers because I'm a psycho. Um, So I just thought it was really interesting. I can. All the true crime girlies are like, oh my God, I can fix Ted Ted Bundy. I can fix Charles Manson. No, but I could. (laughs) Um, Just kidding. I would never, like, I'm not that insane. I swear to God. I just pretend I am. I pretend I am. Um, But yeah, I thought it was really interesting. um, uh, Mark's motivations and like how he goes about his um, serial killer tendencies. I thought like, the, the films he was making throughout it were just like such an interesting element to um, like how he murders people. And honestly, my favorite scene was when um, the neighbor girl meets him and then she, he starts showing her um, the like films that his father took of him as like a child and like just her reactions to it is a lot. Like, I, I think it does a really good job of capturing like the aspects of a serial killer and how like your childhood can influence you and things like that because his dad filmed him and now he's filming his victims and especially since this came out in like 1960 and like the study and stuff of serial killers didn't become like a bigger thing until like the 70s it's cool I think it's it's really I feel like it was really out of its time honestly yeah, it it basically destroyed Michael Powell's career, who did like the Red what? Shoes and A Matter of <laughs> Life and Death. Like he did some major films, and then he did this, and like um, Carl Boehm um, said later that during the premiere of this movie, no one even came to say hi after the movie. They all just left the literal theater, which is wild, and it ruined both of their careers pretty much. Um, because it was so dark. I mean, this is before serial killers were Mm. like a term. And he made a movie about a serial killer. And it's not just a serial killer. It's a completely like understandable and kind of like repentant and struggling with this serial killer. He really does want to like be normal, but can't figure it out. Um, You know, Alina, you're talking about your favorite scene. I think my favorite scene is the one with... um, Vivian who's the extra the you know stand-in and watching that whole sequence of this woman be very good at her job and you know she's just doing her skill and thinking this is what this is and it not being that is one of the like most gut-wrenching scenes for me Um, because the other ones it's quick it's dirty this one is like this girl really believes this guy believes in her and you know but you also see it from his perspective of he's really struggling with all these he doesn't want to you know there's one point where he's watching this with his girlfriend's blind mother and she doesn't know what he's watching because it's um an older film and doesn't have sound and it's wild to see how all of this like merges together into this really creepy like 
I don't know how to feel about this moment. And I do see why in the 60s this wouldn't have worked. But now it's like, to, to your point, Carson, there, um, there are moments that feel tame. But I also think like the audience at the time needed that. Otherwise, it would have been truly just like a brutal film to get through. You know, uh, I even think that having as many kills as it does is wild. Um, you would have expected it was one, maybe two, but there's multiples in here. Um, and the finale is fantastic. Uh, and I'm really surprised, actually, that this has never been remade at all, because it does feel like a film that, especially in like the 2000s when they were remaking everything, um, and today, actually, uh, you would definitely like redo this film. I mean, I guess you could say, you know, like 24-hour photo or something like that. Um, not 24 hour photo. One second. One hour photo. One hour photo. Okay, let me restart. I guess you could say something like one hour photo uh, could fit in that same kind of realm of, you know, the stalker and all of that kind of thing. But I don't think it ultimately has been redone in a way that's uh significant so it's kind of cool to have this film that's like sitting by itself from 1960 mm -hmm. maybe people are just too afraid yeah i was just gonna say maybe people are too afraid of ruining their career with the remake <laughs> yeah i mean it's kidding i don't think that would happen now especially with yeah. like how prominent serial killers are yeah. it is it is wild to imagine that this like freaked people out and it feels tame um, and that's actually one of my biggest problems when I read letterbox reviews. They're like, it's tame to today's standards. I'm like, cool. And in a hundred years, it might literally be a children's film. We don't know. Like try to treat things as the era that they came out. Um, mm -hmm. uh, one of my recommendations actually, uh, if you are struggling with that is to go look at the movies that were coming out around that time. And especially if you go watch a movie that was like, had this as a, you know, it's a controversial film of its time. Go look at the rest of the films because you'll always be like, oh my God, really? This is what was going on <laughs> like in the middle of all this? You're like, oh yeah. Because I think this came out the same year as Psycho and Psycho was like controversial. And um, Psycho is so much less dark than this. Yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of its actual like brutality, Psycho feels much more like a, you know, horror slasher. This feels like something gross. I love that you picked this, Paul, because of Psycho and how Carson and I have not seen Psycho. I thought we were going to get into this episode <laughs> without mentioning that. Yeah, we I have was, to out ourselves. It's been spoiled. I saw the set Universal Studios on the Backlot Tour, so I basically ha got it, you know? <laughs> yeah, you've, you've seen, seen the film. I've seen Rear Window, Rebecca, and The Birds, and that's it so far. I will get to it eventually. I just haven't yet. Not yeah, to jump around uh, topics, I'm thinking about rebooting this now in today's age. Could you imagine a knife on a selfie stick? That'd be iconic. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, I know. Um, I will say, uh, you know, I was even talking about this last week that I've gotten more used to horror. That fucking knife and how he sets up the murder is one of the scariest things I've ever thought of in my entire life. <laughs> like I cannot think of something scarier than his murder weapon. Um, that's it. Like put me in a saw trap before you put me through that. 
like there's something so gross about someone like recording a video of you dying and you 100% know he's like jerking off to it like oh god <laughs> it's just it's brutal and you know the women he chooses and everything about it um but yeah I think there are so many great scenes in this of just like pure terror. And even like, I've watched this multiple times watching it again. I was like, Oh my God, how is, you know, her mother getting out of this sequence and, you know, dealing with the stress of this blind woman around this man who's like a serial killer. (laughs) And she's accusing him of being a serial killer. It's wild, but yeah, I'm glad. uh, I'm glad you guys liked that one. I liked it more than your other one, so I guess you can go into that one. I guess. Oh my god! No, I did like the, I did like it though. I just didn't like it as much. <laughs> okay, well, um, one of the greatest films of all time, my twelfth favorite film of all time, um, and it oh. after rewatching it recently, uh, may move up is The Night of the Hunter, uh, directed by Charles Lafton, uh, starring Robert Mitchum, Shelley Winters, and Lillian Gish. Okay, so. Before you guys uh, hop in with your opinions, I want to like tell a little like history of this. Charles Lafton is a very famous actor. Uh, he did Mutiny on the Bounty and like all these films like that, where it's like he was like a actor's actor, really well known. So he had enough clout to do his directorial debut. He did Night of the Hunter. Everyone hated it. It disappeared, and he was never able to. Um, direct again he was only alive for another seven years but still there's enough time to get one or two extra films in there kind of like hurt everyone's career it's kind of just a flop um and then uh it's basically the story of a minister possibly turned serial killer who murders widows and steals their money and goes from town to town he meets a bank robber who in his sleep says that his children know where the money is held and he goes to the bank robbers now widow and gets involved with the town the children and everything involved and it's um this like dark german expressionistic kind of film um curious about what your guys' opinion is i thought this freaking ruled because I was so afraid of um, the preacher man, dude. Like, he's terrifying. I have not been, like, like I'm a huge pussy. And I get, like, scared by horror. But normally, it's, like, the ghosts and, like, the gore. But I was, like, actually afraid of him as a person. Because he's just so freaking menacing. And, like, I cannot imagine being those two little kids and having to, like, be like within that there's a point where he is like interrogating the children and he's like asking them where did your father hide the money like where is it and he just like kind of like snaps and he calls pearl who is probably only like five or something i can't remember the exact line but he basically like says to her face that she's a disgusting little wench and i was like oh my fucking god this guy is nuts like and all of the singing that he does throughout the film it's just it's like legitimately terrifying but like in the best way possible it's well it's so good and one of the best parts of this movie is he says uh 
leaning, leaning. And what you don't realize, especially us now that don't really know um, like Christian songs, it's not leaning, leaning, it's lean on Jesus. And they reveal that later. And because he is literally Satan, he cannot say Jesus. So he's just saying leaning, singing an old Christian like song, but not like invoking the name that he can't invoke. And if you look at all of his stories, he says, Lord, he says all this stuff. He cannot really say anything truly Christian, which is such a wild concept as you like slowly realize his true intentions. I mean, you're pretty sure early on, but (laughs) like it's wild how the story and the script tells you this man is not, you know, a religious figure. And when he's put against the most religious of figures, um, it's a battle against like good and evil as they talk about in the beginning of the story. Oh God, this film's so perfect. Um, this is like, you know, when I talk about films that I like really like, uh, every time I watch this one, I forget how good especially the second act uh the third act i guess um where most people go oh it goes a little off the rails when you watch it multiple times you realize like how smart the storyline is and how it like has led you to these like conclusion that has to happen and seeing him be full menace um against someone who's full good is so great um but Carson, I'll let you go. No, I really liked it. I mean, the first 10 minutes, I was like five stars, A plus. When it opens with her talking and aesthetically, it's really interesting. And then he's driving down the road, like fantastic. I think at times it moves a little slow for me. That was like the only thing where it's just like, it's a little too slow at moments. Um, but I mean, overall, I think the character is captivating, terrifying as Alina, as Alina said. Um, and then it just builds and builds and builds into this ending um, and I mean, there's some reveals in there that are just absolutely fantastic. Like I, I have nothing against this one. I do like it quite a bit, just to be very clear. Um, it just a little too slow, but also it was like, I'm watching this in the morning before the podcast. So like, if I was watching this just like one night, let's say, especially in a theater, you know, let's, you know, dream here. Um, I think I, it could easily like really just be an incredible experience. I did really like this one for what it was. I I will say also, it is not a dream to see this in a theater. This is one of the few movies that regularly shows in theaters. You do Um, live in LA, let's remember. Oh, no, but I mean, like, across the board, it's, like, one of those that, like, because it's, I feel like, especially with, like, this era, people are like, oh, yeah, we can put it on and we'll get a full crowd because the different ages of people. I feel like it was in Savannah when I lived in Savannah. It was in uh, Dallas, I have watched it almost, you know, every time I've been able to find it. Um, but I also want to say, like, I hate child actors. The two child main child actors in this are so good. And even Pearl, I don't think specifically maybe a good actress, but her performance is so good for that character. Um, there's one line where he says, do you want to tell me, uh, all of your secrets and she says no so nicely 
that is like one of the funniest lines in the entire film. And all it is is the word no, but it's her line delivery. And you realize it actually fits perfect for her character because she does love this preacher because she lost her father. Um, and I think there's a lot of great moments um, in whether or not someone who you hate can still take on the role of your father figure. Um, and, you know, I think that's the thing that a lot of people struggle with. And it's really interesting in this, um, especially with John and his relationship with the preacher. There are moments where he can't decide how he wants to be treated by this man who does want him dead. <laughs> like, there is no question that the preacher wants to murder him. And he's still struggling with how he feels about their relationship. Um, but I also find it really interesting. Uh, Lillian Gish, who plays Rachel Cooper, um, who is the woman who takes them in at one point in the film. She originally was a very famous silent actress. Um, she was in Intolerance. She was in uh, Birth of a Nation. She was like a big actress. Sound came about. All of the um, silent actresses dropped off. And she comes back to do this final role. And I think it's one of, like, her specifically in this role, and especially talking about, you know, not being able to do sound and suddenly being in a sound role. Um, her performance is amazing in this. Uh, especially, you know, uh, she has one line where she says, and he's not a preacher neither. And every single time I fucking cheer. Like, out loud, I am so happy. <laughs> like, you have been brutalized with these kids, and finally someone is, like, on their side, and it is so good. Um, yeah, no, I love this film. Um, <laughs> I have, you know, I just have so many, like, good, strong connections to this movie. Even though they're doing this, uh, this remake, I don't know how you redo this film because part of what makes, you know, to your point, Alina, what makes Robert Mitchum's uh, Harry Powell um, so scary. And the reason I said it like that is uh, if you don't know, Harry Powers was a real preacher who went and murdered a bunch of widows and the children in that story actually were murdered. It's a true, like, this mm. is based on, in the same way, actually, that Psycho uh, is about a true murderer. Um, you know, uh, your favorite film, Psycho, guys. Uh, <laughs> a classic every week. You should have told us, and then I would have watched Psycho. I don't know. I had, well, I I had no, recommend Psycho. You know, I've been great. I had no clue that you guys hadn't watched Psycho. I mean, that was, like, actually, there were multiple ones throughout here. Um if we're going to talk about like a recap of what we've done, there are so many movies that I'd like be discussing in reference. And then I'd go click and I'm like, neither of them have it logged on letter. <laughs> hey, next year. I was like, yeah, no, I know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's so interesting because I feel like so much of what makes Robert Mitchum's Harry Powell scary is the fact that you don't see the murders themselves. And I feel like audiences today will want to see those murders. 
but there's something about this guy and you don't know how he does it you don't know like all you see is like him holding a knife and like there's something about how much brutality was there you know some people explain what they see in the corpses and all this stuff but the fact that he kind of hides what actually happens um charles lafton specifically lawton i don't know sorry for film nerds um i think it's lawton um hides what specifically happens during those murders makes him so much scarier because you have no clue what he'll do to these children um but you do a hundred percent believe that he will brutalize them especially john <laughs> like if he has his way with john john is not getting out of this without being like mincemeat um i also just love like specifically like its commentary on uh actually reference to halloween kills i love how they do mob mentality here both positive and negative um towards the person not positive that mob mentality could ever be good um and just this interest in like oh yeah um all of these characters just believe in this person or all of these characters want this person hung they have like mm -hmm. no qualms with like oh yeah we were right the whole time it's so interesting um and also i just um go ahead well i just wanted to ask why was like this movie so hated at the time because i kind of get peeping tom because of like how graphic it is and like it was before serial killers but I don't understand why this one would be so like upsetting to people. Like I know it was 1955, but still. I, I mean, based think... on a real murder, the religious aspects of it, like I can see it. I feel yeah. like, I feel like it's just so. Maybe now. Okay. So like I went and rewatched um, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari recently for my Hooptober. And that was a film that I went, mm -hmm, okay, I don't get why this was popular. But also I look at it and it's 1920. And a lot of the stuff that was stylistically being done in 1920 was passe by 1950. And I think it uses a lot of that. Um, and I think that people probably found some of it dated. Um, I also think that the third act is confusing, especially even like, I will say the first time I watched this, I remember going, I don't really like the third act. I love the first two. The third act after watching and seeing all of the plants that are paid off in the third act, you're like, oh, that's so clever. That's so smart. Um, it, it's like a film that builds on rewatch. Well, most reviewers didn't get a rewatch, especially like in that day and age where there was one screening at 8 p.m. And, you know, I don't think reviewers were necessarily full-time reviewers. I, I assume that they were journalists who also reviewed films. So you did your first review and then people saw that review and they didn't want to go see it. And then it just kind of like fell apart after that. Um, it's also 1960 or 1955 uh color films are starting to become more common and it's in black and white it just it's probably just a little too 
out of its era in multiple ways, both ahead and behind in a way that it just didn't hit right in 1955. That is one thing I felt is like it feels like a film from the 40s in a lot of ways, not just being black and white, but it just it feels like a film made 10 years before it was released. Yeah, I, I would say both. I feel like it feels like a movie made before and after because I feel like, um, especially on rewatch, that I will disagree with you a little bit, Carson, about you know uh, it feeling slow because I feel like it moves very fast. There is no fat in terms of the scenes. Um, you know, they <laughs> a thing happens and the next thing happens and the next thing happens. And, you know, you go watch other films from 1955, especially the noir genre, and it's like there's one moment that's cool, and it's all leading up to and a result of that moment. Um, And this is like there's 10, 15 moments that you can think of that you're like, oh, that's like the the big moment for most films, Um, which I don't think would have fit with audiences, you know, kind of aesthetic at the time. Um, they're used to a kind of like slower leading into movie, um, which like the entire first act probably was most of the noir films of that time. And I like noir as a genre, but I do feel like a lot of times it's like, oh, if I read the Wikipedia page, I got more from that movie than watching the whole thing. And this one, I don't think you could. Um, but yeah, very interesting. Um, Robert Mitchum went on to do Cape Fear. And also was considered one of the greatest horror characters of all time. And that's also really interesting to me because it's like <laughs> pretty similar to Harry Powell, uh, Harry Powell. Um, in that it's just a psychotic uh, prisoner who wants to murder one family for no apparent reason. But that one was very well regarded. And that was seven years later. Mm-hmm. Um, also black and white, though. The, it's also interesting in the 50s and 60s when you like realize that there was like people struggling with the color versus black and white. Um, you know, I did the Oscar. Um, I w- watched all the Best Picture Oscars and going through and being like, oh, we had color in the 30s. <laughs> and this film came out in 55 and we're like, it's black and white. Um, just you know, we talk about budgets now and it's like, we're talking about usually like vis effects or production design. It was like, literally like the medium was different. <laughs> for sure. Well, thank you, Paul, for these eight weeks, I think it was, or however many, however many weeks it was of this road to Halloween. I wouldn't have watched these films without it. So I'm very happy I did. I think overall pretty solid. I have to say. I had a fun time with it. Yeah. Um, so we're not going to do this next week. We do have a Halloween special. I should mention that we will be talking about some more horror films on if you do want our, you know, your horror fill. Um, but I should mention starting next week, we're doing a new four week series on the podcast. Um, a little bit ago on episode 69, we had a little bit of debate about Chaplin and Keaton who was better. Um, and we ended up just kind of, you know, casually kind of moving on from the conversation Well, we're getting back into it, bitches. Four weeks, four <laughs> Chaplin films, four Keaton films every week. One, one. We're going to see who wins. We're going to see who's the better director. I know you were probably like, oh, it's clearly Chaplin. This is going to be embarrassing when it's 4-0 for Chaplin. But like, you know, 
we'll give Paul the time of day to see if maybe Keaton. I get to pick because I have only seen one Charlie Chaplin and one Buster Keaton film each. So like, also we should put out tweets so that our listeners can vote. But ultimately, I'm the deciding factor. (laughs) Well, unless me and Paul agree (laughs) against you, but sure. Wrong. More than likely, you will be the one deciding. So we will see how that goes. Um, but that is going to be next week. That's it for this episode of Clappercast. Let's end how we always do. Let's give our recommendations for the week. Um, I'll go ahead and start us off. Uh, one of the best parts about it, well, I should say, one of the worst parts of doing film festivals is when you see a really good film that no one is ever going to watch. And then it comes out, you, really, you have hopes, like maybe it's going to be big. And then you it comes out and nobody knows about it. No one's talking about it. Um, and one of those films from this year for me, I saw at Tribeca, was No Future. This stars uh, Charlie Heaton from Stranger Things. I share a birthday with him, which is really weird. Um, but he's in this. And it's him and Catherine Keener, who, let's just say, if you don't know, is an older woman. Uh, they both have a very big tragedy that they're related to. A guy overdoses on drugs. It was his best friend. Um, she's also very close to him. It's his mother or it's his, uh, that it is her son who overdoses and they end up meeting together and they end up forming a sort of a relationship, um, around this tragedy and just kind of working together to overcome their grief and find a path forward. And I thought this was fantastic. I think these are two amazing performances, um, and overall just a very tender, very beautiful film came out on VOD this week. Of course, nobody's talking about it, but that is okay because I am. So I recommend that. Alina, what is your recommendation for this week? Um, Mildly related. I have the same birthday as Charlie Chaplin. So I don't don't know. Perhaps he's going to have a bit of an edge. I'm sorry, Paul. (laughs) Um, Okay. My actual recommendation is once again, not a film. Uh, Because I did not watch anything this week because, you know, the fall gloom, the seasonal depression, it's starting to hit. Um, But on Thursday, WWE had their like special pay-per-view thing from Saudi Arabia called Crown Jewel. And I did not watch the entire thing because like I don't like care enough about wrestling, like the present day wrestling as much. I only care about Edge. I literally, literally, he's the, anytime he wrestles, I will watch. Other than that, I don't give a fuck about anything past like 2012. Um, but like they had, it was like Edge versus Seth Rollins. They've been having like a feud for like a good long while. And this was like the finale of it. And it was a Hell in a Cell match, which we all know by now that I fucking love Hell in a Cell. It's my favorite stipulation. This is like the 50th, I think, Hell in a Cell match ever. It is so fucking good. Like, and I'm not just saying that because it's Edge. I'm saying like, this is generally one of the best matches I've seen, like period. One of the best Hell in a Cells, one of the best wrestling matches, period. There's tables, there's ladders, there's chairs, there's fucking steel steps. There's a fucking chain that Seth Rollins wraps around his boot and super kicks Edge. Like, it's amazing. The storytelling, the spots, everything about it is so fucking good. And I, I really recommend it if you like like wrestling to any extent. It's amazing. Perfect. So you mean to you mean to tell me in 2022 we could do a series where every single week for nearly an entire year we could watch a Hell in a Cell match? Yes. In- interesting. 
<laughs> don't give don't threaten me with a good time <laughs> see this is a classic example of you give someone an inch they'll give they'll take a mile we were like alina yeah you can talk about wrestling and so sure and now this is what we got paul what's your recommendation this week um so i've been listening to the sandman act two on audible and I'm not going to necessarily recommend Act Two, but I am going to recommend Act One. And I'll like recommend Act Two if you liked Act One. Um, I don't find Act Two to be particularly as good, but it is basically uh, Neil Gaiman doing a radio drama adaptation of his comic series, The Sandman. I find the uh, artwork of the Sandman comics to be disgusting and ugly and so I have never been able to get through them but the stories are fucking amazing and so it's very fun to have it in a different medium um, they are doing a show on Netflix but I trust Netflix as far as I can throw them and so I don't assume that it'll be a faithful adaptation this is literally line for line the same as the comics um, and if you are interested in like, I think it's going to end up being about a hundred hours for all four acts of going through a series and listening to, you know, a DC adjacent superhero is really cool. But what's also fun is they get a fucking amazing cast. Um, the lead character dream is played by James McAvoy. His sister, Death, is played by Kat Dennings. And then, like, huge stars show up for half an episode or, like, a couple lines. And it's, like, really fun to be listening and suddenly, like, Miriam Margoli, uh, Miriam Margoyles uh, shows up as, you know, despair. And she's, they're talking about the fact that this character has a, ring with a hook that she constantly pulls at her own skin because she's despair and has to be sad all the time um but all these things that are like really creepy that i don't think really came through in the comics i think i read the first two um books of that comic and was just not into it i am fully invested now in the radio form um so especially if you're interested in the show that's coming out soon and want to know like the original instead of having to like read it uh definitely check it out also i think currently it's free maybe it's not anymore but it was currently free for a while and it's only like 10 bucks on audible right now um and then act two is good as well it's just not as good um in that it gets a little neil gaimany which if you know neil gaiman you're like oh yeah i know what you're talking about <laughs> it just gets a little too deep in the the lore and all of a sudden you're like where is my lead character why is James McAvoy not around anymore. Well, James Corden ever shows up, let me know because I will listen to it then. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Let's find where we can find everyone on social media. Alina, where can we find you? I am at Alina Folds on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Paul? At Price Like Tag on Letterboxd, please follow me on Letterboxd. And also Twitter, where I never post. But if you want to DM me, if you want to like tell me that I have bad takes, let me know. 
Paul is very active in the DMs, to be clear. So you will get a response from him within five seconds. <laughs> he's, he's that desperate. Um, please do follow him on Letterboxd, too. I liked it when we had our little war, but then I just immediately, like, destroyed Paul, so the war ended. So I want to do um, that again, so <laughs> follow the, the funniest part about his, um, quote-unquote, war is I was winning until he wrote on Twitter and was like, please follow me. And it's like, okay, well, you've built up your Twitter over years. I have not built up my Twitter. Well, sounds All like right, a you problem. Sounds like I won the war. Better strategy. And actually, you're only 20 ahead of me. So, like, really? Destroyed. <laughs> That's not destroyed. That's like. Well, sir, get back up. Get, you've get lost 20. the. I've lost the battle, but not the war. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> I am the real winner of Letterboxd followers right now. Just saying. Hey, I think I'm the only one. I no, 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 no. Tip follows, so I'm kind of. Um, I, right? I would say that I have uh, 300 you, more than you. I'm sorry, Alina, that I don't post about getting railed in the park to where every Nolan stand is gonna follow me, hoping to see my tits. So you know, it's a little unfair for you, but that's. <laughs> like, like Could Nolan you imagine stand. if I started an OnlyFans? I think it'd be it. <laughs> I think it really would be. Like, I'll the, consider it. <laughs> the Nolan, oh the Joker fans need something, and this is like a perfect, like you know combination mm-hmm. of their gloves um that was a reviewing this, but, okay. <laughs> reviewing french dispatch while fingering myself <laughs> all Somebody i'm gonna say is subscribe it. to the patreon you don't know what's gonna pop up on there <laughs> <laughs> okay got it <laughs> bye dirty dune watch along Okay, thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews. Letterbox Carson tomorrow. Let's keep me winning this war. Uh, so email us at clappercast at gmail.com. Subscribe on Twitter. Subscribe on wherever you do podcasts. Give us five stars. Uh, French Dispatch doesn't deserve it, but you're giving it five stars anyway, so just give us a review there. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so sorry. Goodbye. <laughs>